As Pat mentioned, we're uh, in uh, our, our first week of just a very, very short two-week series that we're going to do called The Disciples That You Don't Know. It's really a, a, what I call a filler series in the sense that we're in between series right now. And, um, you know, there's, there's stuff I, I pull out of my repertoire, uh, biblical knowledge, in which I think, you know, I'm, I'm not sure we know some of these disciples that, uh, that we all talk about. You, you'll hear about that more in a second here. But I, I think you're going to like what we're going to do this week and next week. And then, uh, and then at the end of September, we're going to be moving on into the book of Jonah, as I mentioned, that we're going to be studying here next. So well, why don't you bow with me right now and let's ask God's blessing on his word. Father, we uh, believe here at Scottsdale Bible Church that your word, the Bible, is life to our souls. Uh, we want to learn about you. We want to grow in our knowledge of you. And uh, so, Father, I pray that as we open up your book now, that you would give us wisdom, ears to hear and eyes to see. I pray we might understand rightly the things that you revealed to us. I pray that as we look at this disciple named Andrew, that, uh, Lord, though there's not a lot written about him, that what is written we might understand and apply to our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. So uh, a spotlight is really an amazing invention when you think about it, guys. It really is. I, I mean, you got a, you got a darkened room like this right now, and, and just by having a, a very intense spotlight, we can point things out that you might not usually see. So you see the North Campus symbol over there and our symbol for leadership and connection. And then you go over here and you see our symbol for evangelism and families, our whole vision 2010. Uh, really, you can turn the lights up, guys. Really a very simple, simple uh, contraption that we've invented years ago called a spotlight that, that helps us single things out that we might not normally see. And when you think about it, all of us like to be in the spotlight at times. I know some of you think you don't, and you say that you don't, but, but you do. All of us like to have the light shined on us at certain times in our lives for what we have done or for who we are. Our birthday parties are an example of this. Anniversary celebrations, retirement celebrations, biographies that we read, ceremonies. They're all examples of have things that we do today in which we shine a light on a person or group to single them out for special observance. And it's in these spotlight ceremonies, these spotlight events of our lives, that we're able to really focus on a part of God's creation, on a part of what people have done that we want to honor and recognize. And so Jesus had 12 disciples, 12 men that he chose to be his closest friends and followers. Uh, 12 men, most of whom would eventually go on to literally change the world with their life and message and even die for a cause that they believe so deeply in. And like most teams of people with multiple leaders, some of these 12 disciples of Christ have gotten more prominence than others. Have you noticed that? And in other words, because of the way that the Gospels have been written, and even because of the way that Jesus led them, they tend to take on more of the spotlight than others. If you don't believe me, just think of the four disciples that almost all of you who have been around the church block more than once have heard of. Who are they? James, John, Peter, and then who's the traitor? Judas, right? I mean, when I ask people who hardly have any biblical knowledge, can you name some of the disciples, they almost always come up with what we call the inner three, Peter, James, and John, and then obviously Judas. But did you know that there are eight others? I, I think you did. You knew that there were 12 disciples, and they also have names, and they also have stories. They carry names like Philip, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, Nathaniel, Thomas, Matthew. 
And there are varied lots. Some of them were respected by culture, some of them weren't. Some of them had a little education, some of them didn't. And we know some about each and every one of them. And what we do know is, is actually worth knowing. And so what we're going to do this week and next, and we'll probably continue this little look as we go along here as a church too and other times when we have some time in between series, is just taking a look at these disciples that we don't know. Uh, we know a lot about the four disciples that I mentioned earlier, but none of us know, know a lot about some of these other eight. And so we're going to shine the light on them over the next couple of weeks. And just by random, I've chosen this time to look at Andrew and Matthew. And today, we're going to begin with Andrew. Now, let me give you a little bit of background about this guy, Andrew. A few interesting things that the Bible tells us about him. Uh, coming from the town of Bethsaida, just north of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, Andrew, we know, was a fisherman. And he probably wasn't a very educated man, more of a front lines worker who labored hard for his money. And Andrew had a lot of street smarts. He could deal with all various types of people, everywhere from other fishermen to marketplace wholesalers to any of the consumers that would buy fish from him. And we know that he also had at least one brother in his family, Peter, the Apostle Peter, and that he lived with Peter, Peter's wife, and Peter's mother-in-law. I mean, talk about keeping it all in the family, right? I mean, back then it was tougher times than it is now, especially here in the United States. And so families lived together, even large extended families. And so we know that he lived with his extended family. And yet what is most interesting about Andrew and this is fascinating, is that he was a religious person, a spiritual man, way before he ever met Jesus. But when we first meet up with Andrew in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, which we're going to read from in just a minute here, we find that Andrew is a disciple of John the Baptist. And we know that way before he met or knew anything about Jesus, that Andrew had a heart for God and a heart for the things of the kingdom, that he wanted to live right before God. He was seeking God with everything in him way before he met the Lord. Some of you can relate to that story. Some of you were very religious way before you even met the Lord Jesus as your Savior and Lord. So if you can relate to that, that is Andrew. That was his lot in life before he came to met, meet Jesus. Now, here's what most Christians do not realize at all about this guy Andrew. And that is that in keeping with his desire for spiritual things, Andrew recognizing true spirituality when he sees it, became the very first disciple of Jesus along with John. Did you know that? Andrew became the very first follower or disciple of Jesus in tandem, most likely with John. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, I want you to turn to John chapter 1, beginning at verse 35. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 35, and we're going to look at two other passages this morning that also talk to us about uh, Andrew, actually three other passages. But first, uh, look at John chapter 1, verses 35 to 41. This is kind of the quintessential passage about Andrew in all of the Gospels. And, and here's what it says. It says, The next day again John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said, Come, and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard him speak, who heard John, John speak, and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah which means Christ. 
And so try to picture this whole scene, guys, in your mind's eye. You have Andrew standing there with John the Baptist, like big time John the Baptist, the guy who was preaching to all the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the people, John the Baptist who was telling them that the coming kingdom of God is just about upon them. And at one point he points to Jesus and he says, look, the Lamb of God. Clear messianic overtones right from the Old Testament. This is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. John the Baptist is pointing out Jesus and saying, that's the guy that I have been talking about. And so knowing that John was simply as one to prepare the way for the Messiah, the deliverer and redeemer of Israel, these two disciples decide to follow Jesus, literally. I mean, they start tagging along right behind him. And Jesus looks back and he notices that they're tagging along behind him like a couple of stray puppies. And he says, what do you want? And as a loss, and as a, as a loss for words, they scramble and they say, well, um, uh, uh, where are you staying? You know, commentators wrestle with why did these two disciples ask Jesus where he was staying? I mean, what's the significance of that? And what most of them end up kind of coming down on is that they basically say it was probably more of a conversation starter. I mean, they were kind of embarrassed that he turned around and, and, and asked them what they want. They didn't know what to say. So kind of like you and I just trying to make conversation, we'd say, well, what did you have for dinner last night? They just said, well, where are you staying? And more than anything else, what you need to see is that they simply wanted to be with Jesus. They wanted to spend time with them. They wanted to learn from him, hence the phrase rabbi that they call him. And so Jesus says, come and see. And they go to his house. They spend the night. It says it was the 10th hour, about 4 o'clock in their time system back then. And they stayed the night. And implicit is in this is that they must have learned some initial awesome things about the kingdom of God and about Jesus because not only did they continue to follow him for the rest of their lives, but they even went on to tell others about him. And so don't miss this, folks. Andrew, with along who we presume to be John, because John in his gospel usually refers to himself as the unnamed disciple, these two become the first followers of Jesus, the first two to be chosen to be of the twelve. And yet it's precisely here where things get sticky, folks. It's precisely here that we begin to understand the true Andrew. Because notice with me, in verse 40, I put it on highlights here on the screen, when it reveals to us who these first two followers were, how it describes Andrew. Did you pick up on it? This is very interesting. It says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Focus on that phrase. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. I simply need to ask you, how, how would you like to be known as so-and-so's brother? How do you think that would make you feel? I remember years ago in my first church, we brought in a gal to, to speak to our women. Her name was Carol Kent. Some of you know who Carol Kent is. She runs an organization called Speak Up With Confidence, and she was uh, really helpful with our women back then. So we brought her in to do this, this uh, seminar for us, and, and I was the associate pastor on call on that Saturday. And so I'm just wandering around the church, making sure that everything was going right, and that the speaker needed everything that she needed. And at one point, when she was in the big room speaking, I was heading to the main office, to my office. And as I got into the main office, there was a guy that I didn't know standing there at the copier making copies. And being the security conscious person that I was, I walked up to him and said, can I, can I help you? Because I didn't recognize who he was. And he said, oh, I'm, I'm with the conference here and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm just making copies. 
And I, and I said, who are you? He said, my name is Gene Kent. And before I could even think about it, do you see where this is going? I said, oh, you must be Carol's husband. And he looked at me, and I think if he could have said what he was thinking, he would have said, yes, you idiot, that's right. I'm Carol's husband. And I thought to myself, I wonder how many times he gets that comment, oh, you're Carol's husband. Now, he seemed like a godly guy, and he seemed to, to roll with it just fine. But you know, it's not always easy to be referred to as so-and-so's wife or so-and-so's husband or so-and-so's brother or sister. You feel a bit diminished when that happens. And what you need to know, folks, is that this phrase here about Andrew is just the tip of the iceberg as to what Andrew's experience was from that point on. Because check this out. As the Gospels would go on, they would repeatedly talk about Peter, James, and John as the inner three and Andrew, once in a blue moon, as the fourth man. I mean, Peter, James, and John were the only ones present at the healing of Jairus' daughter. They were the only ones invited to the transfiguration. They played a special role in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then you get to the book of Acts, and it's Peter, James, and John who were the prominent leaders of the first century church. I mean, clearly, there's a reason we call them the inner three, because they were the ones out of all the twelve that Jesus kind of drew in most closely. And it wasn't that Andrew was never included. He was it's just that when he was included, it was on a rare occasion as kind of the fourth man. Early on in Mark chapter 1, we find that Andrew is included in the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, but most likely because he lived in that same house. And then we find in Mark 13 that, that he's included in the Mount of Olives talk when Jesus talks to him about the end times, but only rarely. Other than these couple of isolated instances, it was always Peter, James, and John, the inner three. And so don't miss this, folks. Andrew, the religious and spiritual one, having the initial thirst and desire, Andrew, the first one called of all the twelve, Andrew, the one who brought his brother Peter to Jesus, does not maintain this special prominence. He becomes the fifth wheel, the second fiddle, the fourth man on a three-man team, important when it comes to the team, but not one of the inner three, not in the starting lineup, and yet he was in the first round draft pick. Please see this. This is the Andrew that the scriptures describe for us. And I just need you to wrestle with how would this make you feel? I mean, how do you think most Christians today would respond in our fair and square democratic society that has so infiltrated the church in our way of thinking? How do you think they would respond to something like this? I think the average Christian today would be pretty hurt and even confused. I mean, when this happens to us in our jobs or with our friendships or in our dating relationships or even in volunteering at the church, we have a strong sense of unfairness and injustice that causes the hair on the back of our necks to stand up. And in our hurt and confusion, like so many people, we might even be tempted to take our ball and go home, right? I've seen that happen in the church over the years. I've seen people who didn't get their due, who didn't get the spotlight shined on them. And we all say, well, we're just serving for the glory of God. But we all know that, that when we don't get some of that glory, when we don't get what we think is our fair share of encouragement or accolades, or at least the position that we're looking for, we are really tempted to cop an attitude and say, I'm out of here. But I want you to notice something. 
And this will be the key to your understanding, Andrew, and maybe even the key for the rest of your life when it comes to you, to, to you and God, is that Andrew didn't respond this way at all. He didn't respond this way at all. In fact, instead of getting all hurt and mad, Andrew does something remarkable. He humbles himself. He stays in the ring. He decides to focus on the one thing that got him to where he was in the first place, the one thing that to him was the key to his whole life, and that was that he goes on from this point to simply introduce other people to Jesus. And that's the main point in your outline this morning, that Andrew was a humble man who simply wanted himself and others to know Jesus more than anything else. It's an amazing thing Andrew teaches us. You want to know in a nutshell who Andrew, Andrew was as a faithful Christ follower? Or what distinguished him above everybody around him? Then know that he didn't fall into our world's trap of upward mobility or positioning himself for success. On the contrary, he learned what humility was and he poured his energies into what heaven applauds the most, simply helping others find the same joy, peace, and purpose that he found in being connected to Jesus himself. And as a result of this, the only things that we see Andrew doing from this point on in the gospel stories, and there's only like two or three other times we see Andrew, but each time we see him simply introducing others to Jesus, helping them come to connect with Jesus as the only one who can deal with the whole in their soul. Don't miss this, folks. This is so important to see. Andrew did not allow his lack of inclusion into the inner circle of Jesus's closest followers to affect his contribution to the kingdom or his attitude. Quite the opposite. He found what was most important following Jesus, and then he went hog wild in the direction of helping others follow Jesus. And so in a world that consistently exalts the front runners, that lifts them up outwardly and, and says these are the most gifted, that, that primarily in our world that shines the light on those that succeed, at least by our world standards, don't ever underestimate the importance of this truth and lesson that Andrew teaches us here, namely that in God's economy, what many see in our world as unimportant or falling short of the accepted goal, God sees as totally indispensable and equally a part of his overall plan and purpose. Or to put it another way, folks, second fiddle in the world's eyes, or even in your own eyes, is not second class or second in purpose when it comes to God's. Not at all. And heaven someday is going to reveal this to us. I've been convinced for years that the people that are going to be closest to the throne in heaven are those that we did not lift up this side of heaven. Amen? And they're going to be those who just served and served and served and didn't care about their own reputation. They didn't care about getting the spotlight shined on them. In fact, the opposite. They just wanted to serve God. And in heaven, we're going to reveal, it's going to reveal so much of what they did. Andrew did not cop an attitude about his lot in life. He didn't take his ball and go home. He stayed in the ring and he simply poured his energies and passions into what he knew best, following Jesus and helping others follow as well. He served God, and that was enough. I need to show you guys this in black and white because it really is an amazing pattern that once you read John 1 and you understand exactly what Andrew was doing here and what he was up against, 
that when you look at a few of the other stories, there's one here in the next verse, and then there's two more later on in John, you realize that this guy really did go on to just overdose on introducing people to Jesus. And so I want you to notice here, as we get down to the short strokes, just three different introductions that Andrew made uh, for the rest of his uh, gospel career here. First, notice with me that he introduced his brother to Jesus. His brother. Look again at John 1 and look at verses 41 and 42. This is right after the night that Andrew and John spent the time with Jesus and learned that he was the Messiah. And it says this. It says, He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Now get this. And it says, He brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Focus on that easy-to-gloss-over phrase right at the beginning of verse 42 there, where it says he brought him to Jesus. I mean, Andrew went out and found his brother Peter, who was also a fisherman, not a disciple of John the Baptist that we know of, and he brought him to Jesus. And then Jesus instructs, interacts with Peter, gives him a new name, calls him likewise to be a follower of himself, and the rest is history. Peter becomes a huge pillar of the church. And yet Andrew is the one who introduced Peter to Jesus, his brother. Do you see that there? And once you get this, let me ask you a very rhetorical question. And that is, is it easy or hard to talk about your close family members about spiritual things? Is that easy or hard for you? I think most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, would say that it's relatively hard, right? I mean, even me, who's a very verbose pastor, I find it hard to talk to my close family members about spiritual things. And not so much Kim and the kids, but definitely my family of origin, the family that I grew up in. I find it hard for many of us, especially if you don't have family members who know the Lord, as Andrew did, and any of us who come from divergent faith backgrounds, we find it difficult to talk to our family members about spiritual things. As I mentioned to many of you, I, uh, I grew up in a, in a relatively non-Christian home. We went to church on Christmas and Easter, but, but even today my parents would admit we weren't very spiritual or religious people. Certainly didn't, wasn't raised to know the Lord as my, my Savior and Lord. And uh, as you all guys also know, in about 1981, I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. I had a very radical conversion to Christianity. And at that time, when I accepted Christ, my mom was not a Christian, very turned off to spiritual things, having been raised in a liberal Protestant home. My dad was pretty much agnostic. My sister was a Mormon. And my brother was following in the footsteps of my dad. And so just picture that. 1981, Jamie, this zealot, comes to faith in Christ after living a very decadent life before that, but also being very verbal and extroverted and all this. And now my whole entire family doesn't know the Lord at all. And from that point on, I mean, I, I just had to learn lesson after lesson of how to try to talk to my family about spiritual things. But because they knew me so well, and because I had such a history with them, it was very difficult. Can you relate to that at all? I, I remember one experience. This is a true story. I was about a year after I got saved, I was uh, home for the summer from college, and I was in my bedroom and just having a, a tough time getting along with my parents and, and my brother and sister, and it was just hitting brick wall after brick wall. And so at one point I was praying. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't raised in a home that prayed very often, but I was praying. And, and I don't know if you've ever prayed, like, you know, what I call trench warfare prayers, 
which are like the opposite of King James prayers. You know, King James prayers are, you know, the kind you pray in church, you know, dearest Godeth, thanketh you for this day, if you know, and things like that. Nice formal prayers. Trench warfare prayers happen on a Tuesday night when you've just hit a brick wall. And what do you do? You hit your knees, right? You hit your knees and you, just, you say, God, help me. And you just say, they're totally honest prayers. And so that particular night, I was having trench warfare prayers and I was on my knees in front of my bed praying and, and my dad, without knocking, just opened the door to my bedroom. And again, my dad's a very sophisticated man. He's a graduate of Harvard Law School, you know, and a prominent attorney in, in, in the town of Cleveland. And he opened the door and he said, Jamie, and, and he just looked at me. You know, and there I was like a three-year-old sitting there, you know, you know, praying like before you go to bed, leaning on my bed. And, uh, and he just paused and he gave me this quizzical look like, what are you doing? And I was so embarrassed. I looked at him and I said, don't you ever knock! I said, leave me alone. I'm trying to pray. And he shut the door. <laughs> I kid you not, true story. Do you know what I was praying for at that moment? I was praying for patience with my parents. <laughs> it's true. I was. And I felt like such a failure. I thought, oh, God, here I am on my knees. I'm praying to you. And my dad interrupts me. I can't even have patience for one second with him. I mean, that's how difficult it can be. Some of you can relate. It's hard to talk to family about spiritual things. Uh, over the years as I've learned to, to talk about family, about, to talk with family about spiritual things, because Andrew is such a great, great witness to us here because we need to introduce them to Christ. Um, I, I've learned two very practical tips I want to share with you right now, if you would all fall into this category. Because maybe you're having trouble right now. Maybe it's with your kids or with your spouse or with your extended family. Maybe they know the Lord, maybe they don't. Because even once they come to know the Lord, it's still difficult sometimes to talk about spiritual things. Here's two things I've learned. Look up here on the screen. First is that thing I was praying for that night, patience. Patience. Patience is probably your best friend when it comes to learning to talk to family members who don't know Christ or even who do about spiritual things. So it works like this. You share your story. You share why. You share clearly. You share verbally. I mean, do all the things that you need to do. But once you have shared, you let it go and you be patient and you let God do his work. That's what I've learned over the years. And that once you have shared, and once you have, have given this over to God, you let it go. It doesn't mean you don't care, but you let it go. And you stay in the ring relationally, but you realize that you're going to let God now do his work in the hearts of people. There's actually a scene very clear here in the text. I don't know if you guys caught it or not, but, but it's interesting that Andrew, it says, went and found Simon... And he said to him, he's verbal, he said, we have found the Messiah. And then he even brought him to Jesus. And then isn't it interesting that right at that moment, Andrew bows out of the picture 100%. Did you pick up on that? It doesn't mention Andrew again. He just bows out of the picture. And it says at that moment, Jesus took up the cause. Jesus looked at Peter. Interesting, what one commentator calls that the searching glance. He looks at Peter and then he has a dialogue with him, and when he says, you know, you are Simon, the son of John, and now you should be called Cephas, you know, the rock man. And I find it fascinating that Andrew simply brings Peter, his brother, to Jesus, introduces him, but what happens between Jesus and Simon is not Andrew's role, that's between the two of them. And you see, when I realized this years later, that, that was incredibly helpful for me, that, to realize that my job is simply to make an introduction 
My job is simply, as one church says it, is just to simply bear, bear a verbal witness, just to share a verbal witness with those around me, to make the introduction. But what happens between Jesus and my family members and Jesus and those around me it is up to Jesus and them. Be patient. It might take time. It might even never happen. But be patient with us. Realize that this is God's show, not yours. You're just here to make an introduction. And then secondly, what I've learned, look up here on the screen, it is to pray. Some people ask me, well, if, I'm, you know, if, if I can't be a part of the entire process because I'm a really high-control individual, then what, I ha- what am I to do? Well, you're to pray. And you're to pray like crazy. Uh, John Wesley, the great reformer, once said that uh, God does nothing except an answer to prayer. And though I think that's probably an overstatement, it is very Luke 18 in its approach. Uh, Luke 18, Jesus tells that story of the widow with the unjust judge and how she kept knocking, 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 knocking on his door for justice. And eventually, you guys know the end of the story, the judge opens the door and gives her justice. Why? Because she kept on knocking. And Jesus says that I told you a story to show that at all times we ought to pray and not lose heart. And so, you know, after that event with my dad in which I yelled at him and told him to shut the door and lost my cool that day, that happened way back in like 1981, 1982. You know what I did from that point on? I just introduced him to Jesus. I backed off and I prayed. And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. And I have the journals to prove it. All through the 1980s, I prayed for my mom and my dad and my brother and my sister. And isn't it interesting, in 1988, what, about five, six years after that time, my mom came home one day and said, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior today. And then in 1995, my brother moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan. I used to make fun of Grand Rapids, Michigan. I used to think, like, who wants to live there? It's full of a bunch of boring Christians, you know, everybody's saved. I mean, I'll never make fun of it again. My brother moved there and met all these boring Christians, and guess what? He got saved. Uh, My sister has since left the Mormon church and is now finding her way, I believe, back to the Lord. Do you see how this works? It took years, and it took me having to let go and let God, but I prayed, and I was patient. And the scriptures say that once we do that, and we really turn them over to God and continue to stay in the ring through prayer and lifting them up to the throne, he's going to eventually move. I believe that in people's lives. There's a Christian comedian I heard years ago that said that if you ever have like an old elderly grandmother or like a long lost relative who's a nun praying for you, duck. He said, because you're never going to be able to outrun that prayer. And I believe that. I believe that as we pray, God answers our prayers. I think Andrew was of that ilk. He introduced his brother to Jesus. This unknown disciple that we don't even know much about, not a very popular one, introduces him to Jesus. And maybe some of you who haven't yet been received in the inner circle like you think you should, maybe you might want to consider stop focusing on the spotlight and simply do what God is really concerned about. Introduce your close family members to the Lord. Now it's fascinating, Andrew didn't stop there. After he introduces his brother to the Lord, he makes another introduction in John chapter 6. He introduces a child to Jesus. This is going to be really interesting. Check this out. He introduces a child to Jesus. Many of you know the context. It's that famous feeding the 5,000 story. 
And so Jesus is uh, by the Sea of Galilee there, and the crowds are really huge and starting to follow him because of all the signs and healings. And so he goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and they still follow him. So he goes up to the mountain, and they still follow him there. And by this time, they're way, way out of civilization, and he's got like 5,000 men, it says, and probably women and children in additional that are, are now wanting you know, to hear more teaching but are getting very hungry. And so Jesus asked Philip where they're going to go buy bread for all these Philip. And Philip basically says, well, you know, a year's salary isn't going to buy enough bread for all of these folks here. And so instead of pointing to a solution, Philip does what many of us do. He points to an impossibility. And it is here where Andrew comes in. Look at John 6, verses 8 and 9. It says, and one of his disciples, Andrew, (laughs) Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Don't let this slip by you, folks. Andrew, in the midst of an impossibility, chimes in and he introduces to Jesus a person and a possibility in dealing with this problem. A a kid with five loaves and two fish. And as many of you know and have read the rest of the story, Jesus goes on to take this introduction, this boy, and he miraculously multiplies five, multiplies five loaves and two fish, so much so that 5,000 plus people get a meal. And yet what is so important for us to see here this morning, folks, for our purposes, is that while in the first instance Andrew introduces his brother to Jesus so that he might become a follower of him, in this scene Andrew introduces a small boy to Jesus who already was following but had some resources that could be used in serving the Lord. Do you see that there? In other words, he didn't just introduce people to Jesus for the first time, but then he made subsequent introductions to Jesus for people that needed to serve the Lord more and be used more of the Lord in their lives. I find that fascinating. And all I know is that this has happened to me over the years. Somebody introduced me to Jesus for the very first time in 1981, but then picking up on that, I had another mentor, a guy named Lud, who introduced me to the Lord weekly through Bible study and mentoring and prayer and taught me how to serve, how to read the Bible, how to fellowship with other Christians, how to live a life of obedience. In other words, I had multiple introductions as people emulated Andrew in my life. And so here's the deal. Many of you have been given God-given resources in the form of talents and gifts and passions. And yet study after study shows that only about half of those who attend on Sunday morning in any given church, and I think ours is very similar, ever really use these gifts and talents in serving God throughout the week. And so could it be that God is about getting many of us to introduce each other to Jesus in a new and fresh way, kind of like that Andrew did with that little kid there, to be used by God to advance his kingdom with the resources that he's blessed us with. And so check this out. If you like percentages, here's our goal as a church. By the end of 2010, that's our vision 2010, we want 75% of those who attend on Sunday morning, which is about 5,000 people right now, 75% involved in some form of outside fellowship and service. Some form of using the gifts and resources that God has given you to impact this world throughout the week in your life. 75%. And if it's true that only 50% are involved now, and I'll track this, then that means that the 50% of us who are serving right now need to introduce the other 50% to what service and fellowship is like. Does that fire you up or what? That does me. That if you are somebody right now who has found that sweet spot in service and fellowship, then be an Andrew 
and help find some help find somebody else find that sweet spot as well help them find an area of service help them find an enrichment class or a small group or a mission trip help them discover the joy that you have found in following Jesus this way that's what Andrew was about so you get Andrew introducing people to Jesus for the first time Peter then he introduces this little boy to Jesus multiple times for service and then thirdly we see Andrew introduce some seekers to Jesus some seekers look at John 12 verses 20 to 22 it says now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks and so these came to Philip who was from Bethesda in Galilee and asked him sir we wish to see Jesus Philip went and told Andrew and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus we don't have time to go into this in detail here but it's fascinating you got some Greeks non-Jews who don't know Jesus but they want to be introduced to him so they go to Philip Philip is a Greek name they think hey he's one of us he can introduce us Philip it's like I don't know what to do I didn't know what to do back at the feeding of 5,000 so like what makes you think I know what to do now and he goes so I think I'm gonna go to Andrew and Andrew don't miss this knows exactly what to do right what did Andrew do he did what he did best he said, I introduced Peter to Jesus. I introduced that kid to Jesus. I think I introduced these seekers, these Gentiles, to Jesus. And though the text drops off the face of the earth there and doesn't tell us what happens next, we've got to believe that in Jesus' style that he met with them. Andrew introduced seekers to Jesus, and not just seekers, but Greek Gentile seekers, which would become huge for the propagation of the gospel in the first century. Please see, folks, he never stopped making introductions. For the rest of his life, Andrew made it a goal to introduce people to Jesus. So here's the deal. Not everyone in life or even in God's economy on this earth is going to be a Peter, a James, a John, or to put it in our terminology today, a Chuck Swindoll or a Daryl Delhousay. But don't be sucked into the world's allure that says that they are the ones who are God's core, his heart and soul for ministry. And don't cop an attitude and take yourself out of the ring with God and others just because the light might fail to shine on you. Do two things. Follow him as he's called you to follow him and then help others know him. Introduce them for the first time or maybe for multiple times for service or even those that are seeking him. Do this and you'll find the sweet spot and who knows maybe even heaven will have a special light to shine on the Andrews among us when we get there. Let's bow and pray. Father, I thank you that uh, in these disciples that we just don't know much about, there are some clear nuggets, if not boulders of truth for our lives today. And God, I got to believe that the vast majority of us in some way can relate to an Andrew. In some way we realize that maybe we haven't gotten the spotlight like we thought we should. And so as we've shined the light on him today and he teaches us about humility about usefulness in your kingdom, about what it means to boldly introduce people to your son Jesus. I pray, God, that we'd learn that for our own lives and that we'd, we'd just do that. I pray, God, you give us patience and make us men and women of prayer who just make an introduction, back off, and then let you do your work in the hearts and minds of people. God, thank you that you've called all of us to this. Thank you that you're alive and working in our lives. We can't wait to see what you do. Receive this communion time now, we pray. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. Well, as the uh, group is getting ready to uh, lead us in some worship during our communion time, our servers are going to come forward right now and start handing out the elements. And as they do, if you're newer to Scottsdale Bible Church once a month, 
at the very least, we celebrate what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to hand out to you a, a cup of uh, juice right now and uh, an unleavened wafer. And uh, this is very similar to Jesus' last meal before his trial and crucifixion where he took the bread and he took the wine and he said, this wine is my blood, this bread is my body. And uh, he said, I want you to eat. Eat until I return. So Christians for 2,000 years have, go ahead and start handing out the elements, men, have had a, have had a, a regular observance of what we call the Lord's Supper. A, a time where we can celebrate the heart and core of our faith, the blood and the body of Jesus given for you and given for me. And so uh, right now we're going to be ministered to in song during this time. Use this time to meditate, to pray, to uh, focus on the Lord, and then I will lead us all in partaking together. So the call is to know him and to follow him. This morning, would you reflect with us on what Christ has done for you on the cross by giving his life? Say I praise you, Lord. 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 Say I praise you, Lord.
tell us on the night Jesus was betrayed he took the bread that they were eating he said this bread is my body it's going to be given for you and I want you to eat remembrance of me in the same way Jesus took the cup that they were drinking he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed with the forgiveness, the remission of your sins. And whenever you drink it, remember me. God, our Heavenly Father, Jesus, the Son of God, we thank you for the indescribable gift. We thank you for the coming of the Holy Spirit that now fills us and enables us to worship you in spirit and in truth. So as we go our way now, God, we pray that we might go as one's ready to serve you, to help others find you, and Lord, to find our joy and our satisfaction in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And the whole church says together, amen. God bless you, and I'll see you next week.